0: Hello, and thank you again for joining us on another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's new podcast. Each episode, will hammer out the latest in tech law and policy by talking to friends and fellows of the Foundry. The Foundry is a collection of early to mid-career professionals paving the way at the intersections of law and technology. My co-host today is Emery Roan, a recent law school grad waiting to be sworn into the California Bar and a fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry and Privacy Rights Clearinghouse based in San Diego. I'm Pinal Shah, an attorney working in GovTech based in the Bay Area. Our other co-host, Joe Jerome of DC, is traveling this week and couldn't be with us today.
1: This episode, we're going to dive into the very timely topic of net neutrality, or more specifically, the Federal Communications Commission's recent announcement that it intends to roll back the net neutrality protections under the 2015 open internet order. So net neutrality is not a new concept. Uh, Tim Wu coined the phrase back in 2003, but it's a topic that has been especially contentious in recent years. So while there's no firm definition of what net neutrality is, at a high level, net neutrality is the principle that internet service providers should be treating all data equally. So everyone seems to agree on some notion of net neutrality in principle, but we've been arguing since at least 2010 on whether or not the FCC should make formal rules enshrining the concept. Understandably strong feelings have emerged on both sides of the debate, and today we're going to drill down into some of the tougher sides of the issue.
0: Yeah, so today we're joined by Tom Struble and Randy Abreu to get us up to speed. On the side of repealing the open internet order, we've got Tom. He is a technology policy manager at R Street Institute. Prior to joining R Street Institute, Tom worked at Tech Freedom, the Competitive Carriers Association, and the Mobility Division of the FCC's Wireless Telecommunications Bureau. Opposing the rollback is Randy Abreu, an attorney, published author, tech aficionado, and recent candidate for New York City Council from the Bronx. Randy is an alum of the Google Policy Fellowship, Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Law Fellowship, and the Obama administration, my brethren. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having us on. Thank you.
0: So we often kick off the podcast by asking what folks are grinding for in tech, in tech policy, but we'll get to that a little later. We thought we'd flip the script this week and ask where you're both coming from on this net neutrality debate. Tom, your organization, R Street Institute, just a couple of days ago hosted Chairman Pai to talk net neutrality. Why is net neutrality so important and why are folks so up in arms about it? Tom, why don't you go first and Randy, if you can respond.
2: Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Pinal, uh, R Street Institute, along with Lincoln Network, co-hosted an event this week with Chairman Pai from the FCC, Acting Chairman Olhausen from the FTC, and also Commissioners Carr and O'Reilly from the FCC. Um, during the event, they all spoke. Um, the FCC commissioners discussed the forthcoming Restoring Internet Freedom Order, the draft of which was released last week. Uh, Chairman Olhausen, by contrast, spoke about the FTC and the role that they can play in regulating broadband once their jurisdiction over broadband service is restored. We can get into later the whole Title I, Title II classification debate and the jurisdictional issues that come along with that. But in broad strokes, it was about the future of broadband regulation as it shifts from entirely at the FCC to a collaborative effort between the FCC and the FTC, with the FCC still requiring mandatory transparent disclosures from broadband providers, but the FTC taking primary responsibility to enforce those promises and to otherwise police any unfair methods of competition or unfair deceptive acts or practices.
1: Randy, does that sound how you would describe the issue, or do you have anything to add to that?
3: Technically, yeah. So this was going on in the debate, but what it, I don't think is actually being talked about enough is the the reason net neutrality laws were passed and were succeeded through the courts just a couple of years ago was specifically because government wanted to ensure that private companies wouldn't take advantage of an internet market. So it wasn't really where the government, we're we're telling you what to do. It's more of we, since we are the government, we are letting everyone know what not to do in terms of the internet market. So I think about two years ago, we we got it right when we finally got net neutrality passed and um, we see what's going on now. It's a rollback uh, of these protections and uh, that that's where I see the debate standing now. Where I come from, this it's uh, the the internet to uh, us uh, in a lot of communities. It's the great equalizer of our time, the openness, the freedom, the the promise of net neutrality. It, if we can't protect that, then we're losing a lot of potential moving forward. Uh, I think that's an issue that we that that's where I see it, and that's where I see the importance of all of this. So sure. you.
2: Oh, Sorry, I guess I forgot to respond to the second half of that question. Uh, But yeah, it reminded me uh, because yeah, I guess basically just gave a description about what's happening. But um, to the question about why net neutrality is really important, uh, our street and myself in particular have been, you know, consistent and strong supporters of net neutrality can read our comments. We filed, like, I think they were reasonably short, like 30 pages and 15 in reply, filed comments with the FCC. That's the reasonably
0: proceeding. short in D.C. terms, I'd say, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Fair, like,
2: uh, like Free Press, Tech Freedom, uh, a couple others filed like 200 pages each, and I don't know who has time to read that. But uh, in terms of net neutrality, yeah, we are still strong supporters in net neutrality or internet freedom. You know, these aren't precise terms, but the general yeah. I think that we should, maybe- should open and fair and competitive. And I think we're, you know, in rolling back the FCC's 2015 rules, we're switching and transferring jurisdiction to the FTC. We're switching from a net neutrality regime based on ex ante rules to one based on ex post adjudication under standards, which is really inside baseball. I mean, the. I guess, arguing about rules versus standards. I don't know if we want to get into that. but
1: <laughs> This is definitely an inside Baseball podcast, so we will love to get into that. I think before we do, just for our listeners that may not be as um, up to speed on the open internet order itself, the broad strokes of what net neutrality as enshrined in the open internet order provides. Randy or Tom, do you want to give, I guess, a summary or point by point of what was uh, provided in the open internet order back in 2015?
3: I can... I can say briefly that the open internet order of 2015, it provided what some would call these bright line rules of net neutrality that are intended to protect consumers. They were intended to protect consumers against anti-competitive practices. So what was established was what internet service providers cannot do uh, in terms of Data that travels over over these pipes. So what we can't do, if if I'm abroad, if I'm an internet service provider, according to these net neutrality laws, I can know I cannot slow down another company's data that's that's coming through the pipelines. I can't, the, which is called throttling. I can't ask another company like Netflix, for example, to pay me, uh, the Comcast, for example, to pay Comcast uh, some money just to speed you through the system because hey. Um, a lot of people want to watch Netflix around 9 p.m. at night. So that, that's that's hurting our, our pipes here. That's making it harder for us to compete is what Comcast will say. So the net the net neutrality laws of 2015, I think, established and formalized and codified the idea that, well, yeah, we want to preserve the openness of the Internet. But we also want to make sure that no one will ever discriminate against lawful content that flows through the Internet. And it just set. Um, procedures, policies, and a framework towards how we can always ensure that.
2: Sure. Yeah. I'll, I guess, offer some more um, details um, along those lines because, yeah, the 2015 order had three bright line rules, no blocking, no throttling, no pay prioritization. It also enhanced the transparency rule from the 2010 open internet order. It also had a general conduct standard, so, like, no unreasonable discrimination or unfair um, practices, that would be assessed on a case by case basis. So it had both bright line rules and a general conduct standard, um, which is significantly different from the 2010, the first open internet order that Julius Janikowski put out um, during the first Obama administration, which I guess I personally liked the 2010 order and those rules more than the 2015 rules, because they were a lot simpler. The 2010 rules was just no blocking, no throttling, and no unreasonable discrimination. Um, which was and plus transparency, which didn't get struck down. But just those three rules, I thought were simpler and provided, you know, the same level of protection to industry, you know, edge companies, private uh, providers and consumers, than the 2015 order, because while it had, you know, bright line rules, each of the three rules had exceptions to them, like you couldn't block Except under these certain circumstances, you could block, you know, unlawful content or bots or, you know, cybersecurity attacks for things you can block. Also, throttling, you generally can't do that unless it's for network management purposes, in which case, right, you know, throttling it, is allowable. And prioritization like operators were right? also permissible. Yeah, um, that, that was a big deal. If yeah, T-Mobile's ban, John, different zero rating plans, um, but even the prioritization ban there's a strict ban on paid prioritization um, with any affiliates, or if you're getting paid, if money's changing hands, prioritize one service over another. But the FCC in the 2015 order said explicitly, you could offer those sorts of curated prioritized offerings, but you had to bundle them and sell them separately from broadband internet access service, the general purpose internet that you buy. So it's saying that you could, if you want to do anything new and innovative with priority, you have to label that separately and Even then, it was subject to the general conduct standard and could still be struck down if it were unfair to different, I guess, groups.
1: So can we talk a little bit about how the FCC takes jurisdiction over the Internet in 2010 and in 2015? Is that what's being pushed back against now? Or what was the the history for that process?
2: Sure. So I'll get into this because we talked a lot about this in our streets uh, comments earlier this year with the FCC. Um, When we actually pushed them to go back to rules that looked a lot like the 2010 order, a transparency rule, and a no unreasonable discrimination rule, which I think would encompass harmful blocking or throttling, Um, that the 2010 order was based on Title I, you know, while broadband is still lightly classified under as an information service, along with Section 706 from the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which isn't actually in the Communications Act. It's like a free-floating provision, but it also arguably gives the FCC some authority. Several courts have said that, um, although other courts have said it doesn't give them very much, so it's still uncertain how much authority is in 706. But that was the big fight in 2010. Verizon challenged that order, uh, at least from what I understand. It's because they didn't trust Section 706 as a grant of authority and thought that if it could be used for these rules then it could be used for a lot of other rules, that would be even worse. So I think the 2010 order was more of a fight about legal authority than about the substance of the rules. Uh, in 2015, uh, I think the challenge was about equal uh, in terms of the substance of the rules and also the authority, because the big difference from 2010 to 2015 was the rules in 2015 were based on Title II rather than Title I, so a big change in authority. And also they added an additional rule in 2015 uh, that wasn't in the 2010 order to prohibit paid prioritization, which wasn't really a popular term back in 2010, but it's now become part of the dialogue around net neutrality.
1: So with the current rollback, what exactly is being proposed? Are we, are we sh- just shifting the jurisdiction from the FCC to the FTC? Is this a deregulation? Are any of these rules simply disappearing or are they only being moved over to the FCC, FTC's jurisdiction?
3: Randy, do you want to take that? The the current proposal uh, in effect it will roll back any prohibitions against blocking and throttling, any prohibitions against slowing down applications and data. We currently have those protections, and I think of these. I think of data as as humans. It's um you know we we mined gold uh, over a hundred years ago. People today mine data. It's um and net neutrality created a type of anti-discrimination law for data, a type of a way to protect anything that can pass through legally. And so what this current proposal is doing, it's rolling back a protection that we were able to finally establish for the internet to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to make the most of the World Wide Web. It, I, it's no secret that for over 15 years, this debate has been going on. on on how to protect lawful content flowing through the internet. And we've seen before complaints from edge providers uh, of the internet service companies um, requesting for contracts, requesting for money, just to make sure that their content flows through. And that is just the beginning of a slippery slope. So for over 15 years, we have been fighting to protect data to create laws anti-discrimination laws of data and we were able to succeed in 2015 it passed in the courts we we regulated the internet under title II, which which yes it's a communication service and to my to the best of my understanding the 1934 act is still in effect and title II says that uh, communications should be given to every person regardless of race, gender, or creed. And the way we communicate in this century is through the internet. So it's imperative that we regulate internet under Title II. That's the purpose of communications. And we, we were able to succeed in 2015 on finally getting these anti-discrimination laws passed. And what's happening right now is that we're rolling back those protections. Imagine any labor protections we were able to succeed in in the last century, we were finally able to succeed in internet data protection. And we're rolling it back right now.
2: Tom, you want to so, respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, you know, quibble with the characterization of the restored Internet Freedom Order as rolling back the 2015 regulations. It is explicitly doing that. Uh, I would quibble, I guess, a bit with the timeline. I mean, net neutrality didn't enter, you know, the vocabulary until Tim Wu came out with it in 2003, 2004-ish, but. I would say that actually, I guess to plug my own work at an op-ed in Morning Consult earlier this year about the origin story of net neutrality, actually tracing it back to the computer inquiries from the 1970s and 80s, back when Internet access was first a thing. It wasn't really commercially available, but it was still used in universities and I guess a few places. But at that point, we still had the nationwide monopoly of Ma Bell, which was regulated under Title II. That's what the whole framework was originally designed for. One nationwide monopolist and using regulation to protect consumers instead of competition. Um, and we had rules back then. that allowed Ma Bell through its other subsidiaries to offer enhanced services, the precursor to information services, including Internet access. But it had to do so via separate subsidiaries than the Ma Bell uh, monopoly telephone network. And they had to, importantly, not unfairly discriminate against independent enhanced service providers. So I think that is really the precursor to modern net neutrality rules, as I argued in that op-ed. And it is all just about unfair discrimination by broadband providers in terms of either traffic management practices or interconnection practices, the pricing that they, you know, the prices they charge to edge providers and other telecom providers to carry traffic back and forth because they don't do that for free. They're, you know, businesses.
1: So I think we're at the point at least I guess where both sides ostensibly are saying that oh we support net neutrality but from what I understand at least those oppo- or those supporting the rollback the current rollback proposed by the FCC are saying that well it's simp- we support net neutrality is just that the FCC is not the correct body or government body to uh, regulate it is that a correct characterization or do
2: you think is that incorrect uh, I mean, people have a lot of different opinions still, and it's still only a draft order. It could change before the FCC votes on, on the 14th, or it could still pull it and push it back further if they want to make substantial changes. But uh, in terms of what's happening, I guess it, they are proposing to shift primary jurisdiction over broadband to the FTC when it comes to competi- you know, policing any anti-competitive behavior, unfair deceptive practices. Uh, Can that's I stop not, you there?
1: Our, I'm not yeah. sure if I misheard you earlier, but... Are, are, is there a no throttling rule enshrined in the proposal that would just be regulated by the FCC, FTC, or is that completely out? Or It's a complete rollback. Because yeah, that's my misunderstanding.
2: No, sure. Yeah, to be clear, um, at least last I saw the draft order, again, it's still a draft, it could change. Uh, it proposes to get rid of the bright line rules on blocking throttling and paid prioritization, as well as the FCC's general conduct standard, while keeping the transparency rule and enhancing it in certain other respects particularly with regard to any blocking, throttling, or pay prioritization, saying there's going to be specific requirements that if ISPs do engage in any of those practices, they have to disclose it in a clear and easy way for consumers to understand. But we are switching, yeah, from an approach to net neutrality based on ex-ante rules, those specific prohibitions on blocking, throttling, prioritization, to an ex-post approach that just says ISPs can't engage in any unfair methods of competition, their antitrust authority. Or any unfair or deceptive acts or practices. The FTC's Consumer Protection Authority.
0: Are there actually definitions for those terms, though? And how do you
2: really determine what's unfair? Right. So now we get into the debate between rules versus standards, which is super fun for wonky Washington hmm. insiders. <laughs> uh, so, industry and consumers need certainty. You need certainty to make it business investments, purchasing decisions, all that. And if you start from a high level statute, for example, the FTC statute, you know, Section Five, of the FTC Act, it's unfair methods of competition or unfair deceptive acts or practices. The FCC, you know, Title Two, the core, you know, protections there. And two hundred one talking about no unreasonable practices or no unreasonable discrimination. I think it was two hundred two. Two hundred one is like all practices for in connection with telecom services must be just and reasonable. I will so, say,
0: I just wanted to add, different people define discrimination in different ways, right? So I just, yeah, how do right. you, how do you
2: Right, so how do you reconcile that? Right, of course, yeah. The rules and the laws don't prohibit discrimination. Full stop. They prohibit unfair discrimination because discrimination in and of itself is not a bad word. For example, we're talking about in the context of net neutrality. If your ISP wants to favor VoIP applications over email applications, I think that should be fine because based on the characteristics of those services, VoIP, you know requires certain QoS levels that email doesn't in order to deliver a rich quality of experience for users. But, you know, compare the, you know, if you're treating VoIP differently than email, that's one thing. But if you're treating Skype differently than Google Hangouts, that's where you start, ha- start running into anti-competitive discrimination. You know, if Comcast, for example, mm-hmm. I think someone else brought them up earlier. Uh, if they, you know, strike a deal with Google to prioritize Hangouts in a way that isn't available to Microsoft for Skype, then that arguably, you know, harms the marketplace. And I guess, you know, there could be benefits to that as well. Uh, exclusive deals are assessed under the rule of reason under the FTC Act to assess the harms to consumers and competition and the benefits to consumers and competition and try to weigh the harms against the benefits and only bring enforcement actions when on net the practice are harmful. Um, so in a case like that, uh, you know, that's the sort of unfair discrimination between edge services that we're concerned about, that net neutrality is designed to, if not prohibit entirely, at least to police and regulate to make sure that, you know, they don't actually get out of hand.
0: Randy, I wanted to ask you, um, I know you work a lot um, with communities of color, and you mentioned that um, this possible rollback could really impact those communities. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, and it could be also in response to um, Tom right now where we, we can talk about prioritizing Google Hangouts versus Skype and how that might harm the marketplace. What I'm, what I'm seeing is, and, and you see all these horror stories of what could happen if net neutrality is repealed, how your internet pricing structure, when you get the bill at home could be changed to make it more confusing, to make it at the end of the day more expensive for lower income communities, corporations and a small amount of big broadband companies to avoid these anti-discrimination laws, they, 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 they're smart. They, they understand how to game the market to make sure that they maximize their profits. That's their role, or that's their job to their shareholders. The, so it's in their best interest to make sure that if net neutrality is repealed, we can structure the market, manipulate some billing schemes in a way that's uh, maybe a little confusing at first, but at the end of the day, very beneficial to our bottom line. Well, the, the scariest potential out there is this, this paid prioritization idea, even just the idea that anyone that creates an app and to just get it out there on, on, the, on the Internet, just get it out there so anyone with a phone, anyone with a tablet or computer can access your app. If you create a, a scheme where you have to pay into the, the marketplace just to get into everyone's home, you created a barrier. And not everyone will be able to overcome that barrier. In my community up here in the Bronx, when I was recently running for city council, and a lot of the conversations I was trying to have with, with constituents was um, how the internet moving forward can be very beneficial to your life. And yes, I'll, I'll tell you this, um, this is the Bronx. A lot of times people say it's one of the most lowest income communities in, in America. So a lot of parents would say, hey, Randy, the internet's not going to pay my rent. Or the electricity bill. So, like, come at me with something more important. But the younger people would actually mm-hmm. appreciate and get invested in this. And if I'm having conversations with young people in my community, and I tell them, "Look, if we can implement a program where coding as a second language is an initiative here in the Bronx, in a generation we can teach uh, at least half of the people here how to code, and they have now the tools and the resources to succeed in this digital society that we're um, coming into." If we now all of a sudden take away the protections that make sure that anything they create, now that they learned how to code, will be able to travel freely through the internet, be seen by every single person in the world, that's the market potential. That's the certainty that net neutrality in 2015 created. What we're doing now is creating a certainty in the market for existing big broadband corporations. We're rolling back anything that they don't like. And we're empowering a federal agency like the FTC to enforce anti discrimination, but they've never enforced net neutrality protection specifically. So it would be entirely new to the FTC. On top of that, it's, uh, you know, agencies are, are creatures of whoever's president. Right now, we're going to roll back net neutrality, give power to the internet to the FTC, and we have a, a Trump administration there. With all due respect, that's not what I told a lot of people in the Bronx was the promise of the internet. And I don't want to be a liar. So I want to make sure that we keep these protections. Tom
0: Tom is dying to respond to that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I had a few points. I mean, it sounds like you're doing great work in the Bronx, so I fully support all of that. But there are a few things, yeah, that I wanted to push back on. Uh, I guess in reverse order, I'll try to remember them. About the FTC's experience here, uh, I don't know if you've read the FTC's 2007 broadband competition policy report. Um, Maureen Olhausen, the acting chair at the FTC, who spoke at our event this week, was one of the authors on that report. But it was 170 pages long, and it delved entirely into net neutrality and all the issues that could happen with net neutrality, basically about vertical restraints on trade, exclusivity agreements, prioritization, interconnection pricing. They addressed all those issues and have, I would say, all the expertise they need to handle these issues. And actually, before um, I guess it was in the late 90s and early 2000s, the FTC, the FTC brought multiple enforcement actions against AOL, CompuServe, um, several other ISPs in the early days of the commercial internet for unfair and deceptive billing practices. Uh, they didn't get into like traffic management and interconnection pricing, but they have some experience bringing enforcement actions against ISPs, as well as a bunch of other high-tech companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, um, Uber you know, the pharmaceuticals industry, microprocessors, semiconductors, a lot of complex areas. So I don't think broadband is in any way outside their expertise. So the FCC has more expertise, but I think the FTC is probably up to the task based on at least that report from 2007, which was great, highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. But uh, the other thing I guess I want to push back on, um, you rightly point out that any, you know, board of directors at a corporation has a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to try and maximize the value of their shares. That doesn't necessarily mean short-term profits, but ultimately to maximize the value of your shares, you know, you make profits. Uh, that's true of broadband providers. That's true of edge providers. Everyone is trying to maximize their profits and growth. That's how you know, these companies work. That's how competition works. I don't think there's anything you know, necessarily bad about it. Um, but I guess to your point about pay prioritization and raising barriers to entry, I think that is an important point. A lot of people raise it and it makes some sense. But I feel like people, I guess, don't think about it in the full context of things I mean, in terms of how the internet works and how traffic exchange works between ISPs, because every single edge provider, every app maker, every website, you know, that you all pay for interconnection, whether you're paying directly or indirectly, you are paying for ISPs to carry your traffic. If you're very small and you're just running your own website, maybe on a homebrew server in your house, then you're just paying whoever your ISP is, and they will pay other ISPs and transit providers to get your information wherever it needs to go. If you're a bit bigger edge provider, then you're going to pay a transit provider like a Cogent or a Limelight or a Level 3 or an Akamai, and they will take your traffic to everywhere else. If you're a really big edge provider like a Google or a Facebook, you directly interconnect with all these Tier 1 ISPs and pay them directly to carry your traffic. So, you know, the fact that, you know, any paid prioritization, the fact that there's paid in the word implies that there's a toll. You know, someone has to pay a price to get that level of service. That scares a lot of people. But I think some of the people who are scared by that don't realize that there's already a price on carrying this traffic. And well, I don't think it's the paid a that people push
1: back it. against. I don't think it's the paid part that people push back against. It's the prioritization part. It's the not okay. treating the data well, equally.
2: Well, at least I, I, I think I mean, so. Yeah, I guess I hear both complaints uh, from people. Some people are really concerned about the paid aspect that you know, the big edge companies are going to get prioritized service and the ones who can't afford it then aren't going to get that same level of priority. That really comes down to the payment Um, is again, the framing earlier net neutrality and its broadest concept about discrimination in both traffic management and interconnection. um, One being a very technical engineering thing, one being just prices, how much you're charging people for it. Um, Some people are really concerned about interconnection pricing. Some people are more concerned about, you know, throttling or prioritization at the network level. So I've got a
1: I've got a question, I guess, for Randy, um, we do, I mean, with the 2015 open internet order, the three bright line rules, you know, whether it was the 2015 open internet order or the 2010 open internet, open internet rules that established, I think that most consumers support rules around throttling and no throttling, no paid prioritization, no blocking content. Why exactly would you say that the rollback is necessary? whether or not the FTC is capable of enforcing those unfair business practices or uh, preventing unfair business practices or not. It it seems like at least now we have these rules in place. So why fix what ain't broken? Tom.
2: Okay. So, yeah, this comes down mostly to the Title I versus Title II debate. Uh, So briefly touched upon earlier, the FCC, you know, Title I is their lightly regulated information services. Title II is, you know, bigger framework, more heavily regulated for telecom services, and importantly, the FTC has jurisdiction over every company and industry in America, with a few limited exceptions that are handled by sector-specific regulators. One of the exceptions in the FTC Act is common carriers. The FTC does not have authority to regulate common carriers. So when in 2015, the FCC reclassified broadband from an information service to a Title II common carrier service, the FTC lost its jurisdiction over broadband providers, which isn't as big a deal when it comes to network management and interconnection pricing, because the FCC and FTC are you know, both able of regulating those, I think, and arguably the FCC has more experience regulating them. But When it comes to privacy and data security, the FTC is by far the more experienced and capable regulator in terms of the number of enforcement actions they've brought, their experience regulating it throughout the internet ecosystem, You know, not just broadband providers, but application providers, content providers. Um, healthcare providers. There's lots of, I guess, industries where they regulate privacy. And that was a big sort of collateral effect of the 2015 order, which was one of the big reasons that we pushed back on it at the time, saying that you can do net neutrality. I mean, we at the time said you could do net neutrality rules like the 2010 order based on Title I and Section 706. You just have to structure them differently. If you guys remember the Verizon decision in 2014, they struck down the 2010 rules because the judge there, Judge Tatel, found that they were tantamount to common carriage and you couldn't impose common carrier rules on private riders unless they were classified as such. So in 2014 May, the NPRM that led up to the 2015 order, you guys recall, Chairman Wheeler actually proposed to not go down the Title II route. He said, we're going to stick with Title I, enact a commercial reasonableness test that essentially mirrors the 2010 order, but allows for more individualized negotiation when it comes to pricing. And that, I think, would have been enough to survive judicial review. And we thought the FCC could have enacted net neutrality rules without using Title II. Uh, They eventually, obviously, changed course later that year and said that we need the strongest authority possible and we're going to do these strong rules. And, yeah, there will be some privacy complications. But in that case, they resolved them through a memo of understanding between the FTC and the FCC, under which the FTC agreed to advise the FCC on privacy and data security with its greater experience, but it no longer had the authority. So that's well, how there was, it There that. were some,
1: there was a bias privacy rules proposed by the FCC that were set to go into effect, right? Before IGPY, mm-hmm. uh became chairman and rolled those back, or I guess decided not to implement them in the first place. Wasn't that correct? Mm-hmm.
2: Or? It's, I mean, largely correct uh, in minor detail. Uh, There were petitions for reconsideration pending before the FCC uh, this spring. And I'm sure that Pi and it would have just been Pi and O'Reilly at the time probably would have acted on those petitions for recon and undone the rules because they dissented from the order in October of 2016. But Congress used the Congressional Review Act, the CRA, to undo the rules on their own before the FCC could Hmm. actually do that. So it was Congress, not Chairman Pai, who undid the privacy regs.
3: Although I don't know how much that
2: matters, because I I think Pai would have undone them anyway.
3: Hmm. I think um, I would just like to say that yeah, it's it's also no secret that uh, corporations don't want to be regulated. Corporations and, and types of industries will do as much as they can to avoid federal regulation. But the Communications Act is the law of the time. It, it hasn't been repealed. It's been amended. And communications is defined in a certain way. And Internet service, uh, the the type of service that it is, the type of access it provides and how, how people use it today, uh, that fits the definition of communications. And it's no secret that uh, being regulated under Title II as a communications service. It's not ideal for corporations as opposed to being uh, just an information service. It does come with a little more scrutiny, but it comes with a little more responsibility. But there's a reason for that. And there's a- Can we dig there. into
1: that? Why, why do you think that? why do you think corporations would prefer that the FTC take regulatory control over this than the FCC? Randy?
3: Uh, and from my experience, it just seems like the FCC. Yes, they they do ask. They they inquire a little bit more. They ask a little more questions. Uh, their scrutiny is a little bit higher on a lot of issues. Um, companies though, would rather deal with the FTC than with the FCC, just for just for ease of dealing with that type of agency in this process. Uh, even the Wheeler could, FCC in this two thousand and fifteen order. Created this this new framework for coming in and explaining whether or not your practice would violate these bright line rules, and yes, that's a burden on private companies that they have to establish maybe a new department, maybe hire a new attorney. But at the end of the day, these these big broadband dollar corporations they can afford to to, to have a new department if it ensures that we maintain these anti discrimination laws of data. With this, it's with this ideal of protecting an open Internet.
2: Uh, Yeah, I want to jump in uh, a couple of points. Uh, I guess first, you know, a lot of telecom companies are multi million billion dollar corporations and have teams of attorneys, very smart people who can handle regulatory compliance. But of course, the 2015 open Internet rules applied across the board. There was an initial period where they didn't apply to small businesses, but that lapsed um, because it was just an interim period. But the rules applied across the board, and at least if you ask Chairman Pai, uh, he has a lot of I guess record evidence from smaller ISPs who don't have, you know, a bunch of attorneys on staff and maybe can't afford to hire them, at least on a permanent basis, who were being, I guess, even more hurt by the rules than the big guys. Typically, you know, big companies can afford regulation, uh, but I guess I think the 2010 rule, 2015 rules had a disproportionate uh, impact on small and rural broadband providers in particular. But uh, to the earlier question, I guess, about why broadband providers would prefer to be regulated by the FTC than the FCC, although it's still going to be both, um, I think they mostly just want for a level playing field throughout the Internet ecosystem, you know, the same standards, but no unfair deceptive acts or practices, no unfair methods of competition, to apply, you know, equally to Comcast as they do to Google or Facebook or Netflix or whatever. Because in many, I guess I think the 2015 order largely assumed that broadband providers are the ones with market power and they're the ones who have all the leverage in these negotiations with edge providers. And sometimes that's true. You know, if you're a tier one ISP, like a Verizon and you're negotiating with some small edge provider or transit provider, you probably have greater leverage in that negotiation. You're going to get more favorable terms. But that's not the case across the board. If you're a small ISP in my home state of Kansas and you're negotiating with Netflix, I would say the bargaining leverage is in Netflix's hands there. They're probably going to get more favorable terms than the ISP because Netflix could probably afford to um, lose a bit of subscription revenue if they're they're customers who are on a network and suddenly they can't access Netflix because there's an interconnection dispute that can't get resolved. Netflix could probably afford to take those losses from any lost subscriptions in the short term, more so than the ISP. If the ISP has all its customers who suddenly can't watch Netflix, they're going to be complaining to their ISP, and assuming they have any option to choose, which most people do, although a lot of people don't have much choice, if any, uh, then you know, in that case, like it's I guess unfair to assume that the broadband provider has all the power um, when they're dealing with you know a Netflix or a Google. Um so I think under the FTC, you know, their standards would apply, you know, their, I guess, consistent standards across the board, and they would apply different, but they would apply differently in different contexts, you know, to a big edge, a, you know, a big telecom company negotiating with a small edge company, there's, you know, likely that the FTC would, you know, fall on the side of the small edge company and bring an enforcement action against the big telecom company if they're trying to use their leverage to extort, you know, higher prices or otherwise exert anti-competitive pressure on the small edge company. But it would also, you know, work the opposite way in the other situation where you have a small telecom company and a big edge provider who's threatened to withhold content if they don't get more favorable terms. So I think that's the big benefit or one of the least big benefits of switching to the FTC is that you get a consistent level playing field, consistent standards throughout the ecosystem that can account for the differences in market power and leverage in these different negotiations.
0: So I want to pivot just a little bit, and I want to ask, why do you guys think this seems to be such a partisan issue? Randy, do you want to?
3: Yeah, take it's that? I, it's maybe may a culture of DC, in and of itself. A lot of uh, a lot of the broadband companies that don't want to be regulated are friendly with members of Congress that are of a certain party, and a lot of these. Um, it's so, so usually the edge providers and activist groups that are on the, the other side and, and typically friendly with people on the other side of the party. Um, and so you, if you have a lot of you got a lot of strength and power moving in, in a certain direction, you're going to see the partisan side uh, take weight. I think we, we're we having the really good discussion here where we're actually cutting through the issues. Like I completely agree with Tom on yeah, the 2015 order might have ignored rural communities and smaller um, Internet providers and in the future when cuz we're going to have to get this right this we're only the internet's only getting just got started in the future we should bring all of these complaints and issues to the table because these concerns matter and that's the only way that we're going to actually move forward because right now it's it, it's we're in that also in that culture it's a it's win loss in, in whatever party you're in and you try to get the wins wherever you can and we're we're not always sticking to facts. It's it's usually talking points, and you try to mm-hmm. you try to sway the argument as much as you can that way. And but I think we're doing the right thing here. We're laying out all we're laying all the concerns out on the table, and we should. I mean, I think us four could probably fix this issue.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, with enough time. I agree. <laughs>
1: but, humbly, humbly, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> <right>. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I guess to follow up on that, uh, I mean. I certainly agree that there's a fever pitch of, you know, partisanship around net neutrality these days and has been, I think, since the 2015 order or well, the 2010 order. is also a three to two vote. Um, and the first net neutrality enforcement action brought against Comcast in the BitTorrent throttling case back in 2008, also a three to two vote. So the FCC, you know, typically is done sort of nerdy inside the Beltway telecom regulation that hasn't gotten any, you know, attention from people in the rest of america but that's changed a lot in the last decade or so as people you know use the internet more and start to love it they start to care more about these issues and i think i mean i guess there's a lot of contributing factors to why we're in the situation we are today some of them are outside our control um but in terms of the fight, it's still an ongoing, you know, it's a trench war, and it's pretty ugly. Um, not even, you know, with ad hominem, you know, personal attacks on people, not really talking about the issues, at least in the sort of, you know, rational uh, way that we are here. But I think that's gonna, you know, it's sort of intractable, it's going to continue to be that way until Congress or the courts actually intervene and solve this issue one way or the other. Because as we've seen, with the level of deference that agencies get in interpreting the law under Chevron and various other precedents, the FCC has broad leeway to regulate broadband very lightly as an tele- information service. That was upheld by the Supreme Court 6-3 to three in the Brand X case back in 2005. Right. But they also have authority to regulate under Title II. That was upheld 2-1 to one in the D.C. Circuit, denied on banc review uh, last year. There's still Supreme Court cert petitions pending, but I don't expect those to be heard because they should be moot soon. Um, So it's going to keep swinging back and forth from administration to administration until Congress or the courts intervene and say one way or the other, you know, this is how you're going to regulate broadband. You can do this. You can't do that.
0: So so before we move on, then, what does a legislative net neutrality fix, fix look like? And can both sides of the aisle actually come to an agreement?
1: Or a judicial fix? What would that look like?
2: Yeah. Well, a judicial fix would uh, be pretty easy to understand uh, because I was on an amicus brief in the challenge that the U.S. telecom case back in 2016 arguing that basically the precedents from Brown and Williamson and Utility Air Regulatory Group saying that on major questions of economic policy, that the typical Chevron deference is inappropriate, and they should have a more searching standard of review. That was not um, that brief; didn't you know? Wasn't very persuasive to the judges in that case. But that's the judicial watershed, you know, moment that we're waiting for is for you know the judiciary to strike down. I would say, administrative overreach and say that you can't make such policy. You know, policy needs to come from Congress first and foremost. And then agencies can, you know, make minor changes on the margins, but not fundamental shifts back and forth. Um, That would be, I guess, what it would look like uh, in terms of further reigning in general deference. Or you. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or
1: alternatively, the court could uphold it. But.
2: Right. So, I mean, from my perspective, it'll be a mixed bag, probably regardless in the outcome of the next litigation, because if the order gets upheld, I'll probably be happy about that outcome, but still lament the state of administrative deference in the law. But if there's a change in heart and Judge Tatel strikes down the order and says that, no, we got to have a more searching review, I'll be happy about that change in precedent, but, you know, probably unhappy about striking down the order. But So we'll see what happens.
3: Randy? Uh, and I think uh, the legislative fix, I'm, I'm sticking with my guns. We got it right in 2015. The bright line <laughs> rules, um, that's at least where we should start the conversation. That's, and then was it perfect? Maybe not. And then we can tweak around the edges there. But if, if we're not, if the bright line rules aren't a part of the fix, then I don't think the conversation will go anywhere. Those are the, the anti-discrimination laws of data that we created in 2015. And we can't turn our backs on that. And it, it, I think it just falls in line with the purpose of the Communications Act of 34 and the way we can define the Internet today. It, it is a communication service, in my opinion. And um, we'll just see how this goes. We might need a brand new Congress, uh, some, pe- some more experienced people that have uh, definitely more experience with the Internet who would appreciate this conversation or we'll just see how it turns out.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think there seems to be a sort of a trend nowadays to blow things up completely rather than try to, you know, tweak what's already there. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs>
2: um yeah, I guess I won't, you know, I, I don't know of any bill in Congress that could move right now. Uh the previous Congress, you know, it's notable that the Republicans, when they're in control of Congress in twenty fifteen, twenty fourteen, did offer What, you know, I guess in their minds at least was a fair compromise saying that, okay, if you want these bright line rules, we will give you bright line rules against blocking, throttling and pay prioritization, but we're not going to give you Title II. We're going to say, you know, you can have these bright line rules if it's under Title Uh, I. I guess some Democratic members were interested in that and several in Congress still express interest in seeking a legislative fix, which I commend. Um, But they didn't take that deal at the time. And I don't think Republicans would offer the same deal today now that they control all three uh, facets of government. But going forward, we need some legislative fix. And I'm, at this point, very open-minded about what that might look like.
0: Well, thank you guys for that um, discussion. I know I learned a lot, and I think it's safe to say that, you know, reasonable people can disagree. We did this a little backwards today. We generally dive into... uh, into personal backgrounds first but because it's such a hot topic we wanted to jump right into net neutrality. Um so just really briefly um how did you guys actually get involved in net neutrality to begin with?
3: I got the that Google policy fellowship that I did was in 2013. I was a second year law student in San Diego and it was my first stint in DC. Um yes yeah, San Diego and <laughs> it was my first stint in DC. First experience getting that policy background, the regulatory background. And it was the first time I also realized this is what I want to do. I was in tech law. I was working off for an advocacy group. And it's 2013. So a lot of things are happening behind net neutrality. But also this is the summer when Snowden leaks uh, are happening. And it's a hot summer in D.C. And <laughs> yeah. so if there's any. So, so you know, like you all have, I'm sure, had the same like, experience where this, this is what I love. This is what I want to do. And net neutrality was one of the first projects that I worked on and um, I I was in DC in 2015. Uh, I actually was um, uh, in the cybersecurity division in 2015 at the FCC when net neutrality was passed. So I saw Mm -hmm. it from the inside at that point and I I followed the court cases. I I feel like I've been connected to this for a while and I feel like the conversation isn't ending here. We're just getting Uh started.
2: Right. Sure. So on my end, yeah, I guess I first came out to DC. I grew up in Kansas, went to undergrad at Kansas. Uh, but I first came out to DC to work on the Hill for Jerry Moran, my local congressman, now went two senators, and then went into law school at GW and didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. But at the end of my first year, we got the telecom law journal, the FCB, federal communications law journal sent to uh, GW from Indiana. It seemed like a good opportunity because I like nerdy techie stuff. So I applied and got onto that journal and then decided to cut my teeth on spectrum policy because that seemed like a wonky, interesting thing to do. And so I did that, got a job at the FCC the following summer, working in their wireless bureau. Uh, and then I also, I guess, took a Google follow- Google uh, summer policy fellowship. Uh, mine was at Tech Freedom, started in 2014. Uh, actually started the same week, the NPRM in the, uh, I guess, open internet proceeding back in 2014. Uh, came out, so I immediately hit the ground running, and my job was to research net neutrality. And I was involved in the rulemaking back in 2014, filed comments and replies. We filed a brief in that case. Um, this time around, you know, from our street, we're also more involved, and I guess unsurprisingly, got cited a few more times in the order this time than back in uh, 2015. But uh, yeah, I guess I've been in the telecom bar now for over five years and been dealing with net neutrality the whole time. So. Yeah, I guess well-versed in at this point, and the arguments are very well-worn, but people are still interested to hear them, so I'm happy to chat about them.
1: (laughs) So you guys are both really laser-focused on the tech policy world. Uh, One of the real focuses of the show is sort of advice for young professionals or students or early career professionals. Uh, I've got to ask, you know, we're trying to keep it brief here, but do you have any advice for early career professionals or young folks that are trying to get into the tech policy world?
2: Sure. Uh, So... With hindsight, uh, you know, I might have studied, you know, some hard science, you know, engineering or computer science. I ended up majoring in uh, psychology and political science during undergrad. Um, so I've been at a disadvantage, I guess, trying to learn all this techie stuff just by reading tech blogs and spending time on TechMeme and Y Combinator, Hacker News, and reading through wonky FCC releases. But eventually, you know, if you read enough of it, you get familiar with the terms, then it becomes easier. Um, but I guess in terms of I guess, good advice. I think, I guess, aside from a technical understanding, that is very useful, if not necessary, to work um, well in this area. I think also, you know, I didn't go to business school either, but a mind for business and how business models work, I think, is very important to understand how to regulate these markets. When you think of you know different actors in the internet ecosystem, they're pretty much all corporations that are profit-driven and they have to somehow make money so I guess thinking about how like online advertising works, and you know different I guess subscription models versus advertising-based models, and all the different actors in the internet ecosystem, many of which have no direct consumer relationship, like you know all the middle-mile transit providers, the equipment makers like Adtrans and Broadcom's. There's a lot of people out there who are all involved in this space. But just as a consumer, you only interact with a few of them. So you, I guess it's, I think it's important to try and understand what's going on you know, underneath the hood and how the internet actually works. And I, you know, I I'm, I know I guess most of the people I know at the FCC are very well versed in the internet and how it works. But I see a lot of people, you know, weighing in on telecom policy, and they seem, you know, I guess a bit misinformed or confused about how things work. Um, which is understandable but i would say that you yeah, understand the technical aspects and the business aspects of internet regulation uh, are the best way to get your foot in the door and impress people with your knowledge about these areas and <laughs> grow your career
3: ready i would say and this only counts if we can protect net neutrality right so if i'm talking to someone i would say dream big and just try to get as prepared as you can. The Internet and this technology ecosystem that we're going into can seem daunting to a lot of people. It can seem confusing. And they should trust that there's a group of mentors out there, a group of people that want to see everyone succeed and are ready to provide the training. So if you have just the training, just a little bit of background knowledge on how the Internet works, maybe a little knowledge on how to code one or two languages at an early start, the sky is literally the limit. Dream big. Try to create something. If I can get someone who grew up in a low-income community to create an app that from advertisements makes just a million dollars a year. Like, remember how big Flappy Bird was? And so <laughs> if you can just get one kid from the Bronx maybe to start an app a million dollars a year, he'll, he, she'll hire six of her friends and everyone's making $80,000. We just transformed the community. Um again though, just to bring it full circle, that's only true if we protect net neutrality laws. Mm-hmm. These anti-discrimination laws are really important to me.
0: So now we get to my favorite question of the podcast. What are you grinding for? Tom?
2: So, uh my daily grind, uh, I guess I feel very privileged to be able to wake up in the morning and go to work on things that I'm legitimately interested in and passionate about. And it makes, yeah, I guess earning a living much better than at least the alternatives. There's a lot of ways to put a law degree to use, but being able to work on the things that I'm personally passionate about every day and try to make for a better and more prosperous, you know, internet environment for the tech ecosystem. I think that is, I guess, the big driving force that gets me out of day every, uh, gets me out of bed every day to uh, grind it out.
0: Nice, Randy. Tell me about the grind in the
3: Bronx. The Grind in the Bronx. I grind all the time for the people <laughs> of the Bronx, specifically when I realize that. Um, 60% of people in the Bronx are on the wrong side of the digital divide. Meaning we, can't, we either can't afford internet access or even if we could afford some type of it, we don't know how to, we don't have the digital literacy to make the most of the potential of the internet. It's not just the Bronx where it's 60%. These are low income communities um, throughout America, rural communities, communities of color. And I grind because the, the, the future, like Commissioner Rosenworso I said before, the future belongs to the connected. And it would be it would hurt me to sit on a rocking chair when I'm 70 and know that I didn't do everything I could to help connect those that needed to be connected. So I keep grinding to make sure that we can connect everyone in America and hopefully we get to this future that I'm sure the four of us, we see it. And I think working together, we'll be able to get there.
0: So we've just been ending our discussions by asking our guests what book is on your nightstand. What are you guys reading this these days in tech law and policy, or just in general? What are you reading, if anything?
3: So I actually my campaign for city council ended three weeks ago. Okay, so can I, you just give I us like a, a
0: little like what was it like to run hey, for it city was council?
3: Exhausting. It's um, <laughs> it's New York City Council. It's um I I would I would ended the Obama administration January twentieth. Me too was the day
0: <laughs> that was a and, sad day and,
3: or a great day for some or great
0: for some people it was a great day. and
3: i <laughs> and i came back to went right back to my hometown community in the bronx campaign was launched valentine's day the primary was september 12th so we're looking at about uh, a little under seven months to really just grind it out it's mo- 6 a.m to midnight it's a traditional oh. day. Oof. You do it all the time as the candidate. You're, you're the campaign's biggest volunteer, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do it all. You have to fundraise. You have to
0: like people. That
3: sounds oh. awful. <laughs> you really have to real like people. We are one of the disengaged <laughs> communities in America. My, we, 12% voter turnout is wow. about right. Oof. So imagine knocking on doors and, and talking to the 88% who don't vote. There's a reason for that. There's a reason they feel disengaged, disenfranchised. And it um, it was a lot of learning quickly on the job, what what are the issues that that matter most to your community and how can you help them? It was was exciting. There were five candidates in total in my district. I came in second place. Uh, The guy who won has been the incumbent for eight years. Obviously, I ran against him because I thought he was doing a bad job. But I learned a lot about politics and campaigning and name recognition and Maybe don't run a campaign in six months, maybe a little more than six (laughs) months. But
0: that's awesome. So I went to a talk by Amanda Littman, who was the um, deputy director of the Clinton, like email, like she was, yeah, Clinton's email director. Yeah. Um, she's the author of this book called run for something. And I went to a talk, uh, politics, I DC recently, and she said that most people who run for the first time they lose. And so you have to just keep doing it again. So, I mean, I would just say just on. run again. I mean, that's amazing to even, I'm be looking able to
3: do at this. the data now and it's like, now it's like I'm sitting back and thinking, holy crap, what happened there these last few months? Um, like the Hillary book and yeah. And look, looking back at the data, it's like, hey, we lost by a 1,000 votes. Here, and I have about, in my community, 2,500 people that I can, I have their data, I have all their information. Definitely, we stay yeah. in touch for a lot of reasons. And it grows in that way. You really only need about 4,000 votes to win my district. Mind you, there's about 60,000 eligible voters, but you only need wow. 4,000 to win. But yeah. if I can start at wow. 2,500, that's good. It's, it's growth. Um, a lot of people told me to watch the Cory Booker documentary about his yeah. first run. So okay. apparently he lost his first run for city council too yeah congratulations
1: yeah. regardless hey, thank you
3: uh, very exciting so we definitely didn't
0: talk about books but no that's you you don't have time to read right now you're still tired
3: <laughs> no you're i was saying tired. i has <laughs> been three weeks i'm exhausted but yeah. it, and i haven't I, I my free time i guess i was reading the, the the new internet order the net neutrality order but is that really like fun reading um no uh, it doesn't
0: have to be fun
3: i did pick up um uh, the, this book by juno diaz this is how you mm-hmm. lose her nice. i read his book brief wondrous life of oscar Wilde, which he won the the pulitzer for but this one is actually i think better so it's it's some fun reading that i've actually been able to get into and i'm ex- i'm excited i can read a good book for yeah, once in a while i
2: bet yeah. are you reading anything tom uh, so i guess awesome, i have more like, free time than randy yeah. uh although admittedly most of my i spend much more of my free time gaming than i do reading uh but you asked about books uh i'm reading a book uh i guess just one right now but uh, it's the political spectrum uh, it's by tom hazlett it's about the history of spectrum regulation at the fcc
1: hmm. really cool oh huh. recommend it
2: uh once i finish it uh i will give you an honest recommendation i could say now i like tom hazlett's work generally so i'm guessing the book will be good but i'll withhold judgment until i've actually read it
1: all right we'll make sure to get an update panal what are you reading
0: i'm still reading privacy in a nutshell i know i said that last time but i'm planning (laughs) to take my sip exam soon Uh, i just need to bite the bullet at some point but after taking the california bar exam Even though that was several years ago at this point, I still don't want to take another exam. But I'm sure, Emory, you can feel my pain on that, too.
1: I'm actually waiting to take SIP-E as well. I'm trying to get some GDPR skills. But my uh, supervisor at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse said that um, SIP was about one-eighth as hard as the bar. So you'll be fine. (laughs) One-eighth. I can do that. (laughs) I promise I uh, finally finished Handmaid's Tale. I am returning to Orcs and Crake for some more Margaret Atwood. But on the tech policy space, I've got uh, Carpenter v.U.S. up in my tabs for the transcript today. That is going to be some night reading tonight. (laughs) All right, so this week on the Foundry job, where we have internships, fellowships, and full time positions across the country, and even an opening at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. So if you're interested in doing some awesome privacy work, I definitely recommend checking out at least the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology in D.C. They've got a summer internship that looks like it's a really amazing opportunity. They've done some awesome work in the past few years. Um, you can check out that internship and more all at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry Job Board at us/jobs. Tom, Randy, I want to thank you guys so much for being our guest today. This has been a lot of fun. And I think we got to, again, you know, we brought it up earlier, but this is the kind of discussion that everyone needs to be having.
2: Yeah, thank, thank you, you for guys. Having.
0: If you want to hit us up on Twitter for questions, comments, or just to generally Twitter stalk us, you can reach me, Pinal, at Woman of Fuego. Uh,
1: this is Emory. You can find
3: me at Emery Roan.
2: Uh, this is Tom. You can find me at T Struble.
3: And this is Randy. You can find me at Abreu for NYC.
1: All right. And we belatedly want to thank Ali Sternberg, as always, who joined us in our first episode for providing the music for the intro and outro of the show. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, spread the word to a friend Uh, for a small podcast like ours. Really, we have no marketing budget, obviously. So the only way we get spread is through your words. So thank you. And if you did, maybe hit us up on Twitter and let us know. It will mean a lot to us. Thanks for joining us.